Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus 21 to 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Cody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am a church member here. Let's open with some prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray for your gracious spirit to be in and amongst us today. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your sixth word has for us. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, God. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, four words. Our passage this morning is four words. You shall not murder. It's actually only two words in Hebrew. It could be literally translated like don't murder. What a simple and short passage we have today. And really, none of us needed to come here to learn a new thing around those four words. We already agreed with this and we already knew this. And, and not just those of us here, but really everybody that we know would agree with the inherent wrongness of murder. If you were to poll your neighbors on the Ten Commandments, I'm confident that the Sixth Commandment would be the only one that you would have every single person agree. Other ones like to not commit adultery or covet or take the Lord's name in vain, those ones would get more of a mixed review, but not this one today. We all believe in the inherent wrongness of murder. So when we, when we see a passage like this, we can actually be tempted to believe that this really isn't even relevant for us this morning. We might have thought to ourselves, I might be a lot of things, but I'm not a murderer. For example, have you ever shared your faith with someone? And you know, we, we painstakingly labor to try to show the depths and the beauty of the gospel. 
And then after all of that, someone looks at you and says, even if everything you're saying is true, I don't need your Jesus. I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. There's this sense that it's like, this is like the universal measure of what makes us good people. But before we get too comfortable today, you know, I've been wrestling with these four words for a couple months, and it's amazing how God's word always surprises us. It surprises us with its beauty and with its depth, uh, but it also surprises us with this call to radical living. And I hope that's what we'll see this morning, that there's a call to radical living in the sixth commandment that we actually can't do, we can't obey, unless God gives us a new heart. So I have three simple points this morning. Point one, what is the prohibition of the sixth commandment? And the second point, how can we practice this in our lives? And the third point, what peace is offered to us with the sixth commandment? So point one, as I said, to not murder is pretty much a universal decree. We, we see this in all cultures, we see it in all religions, and we see it through all different times in history that there are laws prohibiting murder. So when God penned the sixth commandment, what, what did he mean? What was he getting at? How was he calling Israel to be a distinct nation from their neighbors? Um, I think a, a good place to look to figure that out is why don't we take a look at a few of the laws around murder that existed at that time. So I have three examples for us this morning. In Mesopotamia at that time, if you were convicted of murder, you would receive the death penalty if you killed someone with the status of a free man. But if you killed someone of a lower status, particularly a slave, you would receive a lesser punishment. And so we see here in Mesopotamia that there was this distinction between someone's status warranted how grave that crime really was. And therefore, your punishment would depend on really how, how severe the crime was. Middle Assyrian laws provided that if a person entered the home of a, family of a family and killed one of its members, the, the, the head of the household had three options. They could either retaliate by, by killing the murderer, or they could instead take that person's property and possessions, or they could instead take one of their children to replace their own. The Code of Hammurabi, an ancient Babylonian legal text, called for the death of a man's son if that man had been involved in killing another man's son. So what we see in these examples here is these cultures, well, they valued life. Hence, they had laws that prohibited murder. But what we also see is they valued life differently than the God of the Bible does. The gods of these nations looked at people as just another piece of creation, and they were to be seen in light of their economic value, what they had to offer. But if we compare those laws with what we find in Scripture, let's take a look at Deuteronomy 24.16. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, each one 
shall be put to death for his own sin. What we see here is we serve a God that is just. You know, one day I will stand before God and I will give an account for the life that I've lived. And on that day, the question won't be, have I sinned? We all know the answer to that. But what the question will be is, where is my sin? Is it pinned to me like a badge of honor? Like I love my sin, I worship my sin? Or have I daily served Christ by throwing this sin off of me, hating it, and deciding to lay it at the cross and serve Jesus instead? But either way, whatever the case may be, what Deuteronomy 24 tells us is that my children or those around me, they're not guilty nor are they innocent because of my actions. We serve a just God, and I only have to give an account for myself, not for other people. We can look at Numbers 35, 31. It says, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. What we see here is God doesn't care about the social or economic status of the victim. It's not even mentioned in this verse. It just simply says, if you commit murder, regardless of the person, the punishment is the same. So why is that? Why does God prohibit a monetary fine in the case of murder? Why doesn't God allow me to give you my son if I have killed yours? Well, I think we find the answer to that question in the very first page of the Bible. If we look at Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You know, this verse really changes everything. We see that we're not just another part of creation. We see that our worth isn't determined by how valuable or how useful society thinks we are, but our value is determined by God. The God that has immeasurable power and beauty and worth, the God that is incomprehensible, this God has set his image on all people, not just those of us that are affluent or brilliant or beautiful, but equally on all people. So therefore, the Bible says that murdering an image bearer can't simply be atoned for by a payment or by a trade. To murder a person made in the likeness of God is serious business. So we can see this distinction between the laws of Scripture and the laws of Israel's neighbors. And, and I think it's important to ask ourselves, well, how would we, how would our culture, our society stack up on that spectrum? And you know, on the one hand, Canada, when we were having our laws penned around murder, was a Christian nation. And so if someone is convicted of murder on that trial, there, there's no question of how valuable do we deem that person that was murdered. Thank God for that. To murder someone, to murder an image bearer, it's just, it's all the same. But at the same time, I think the heart of our culture 
in some ways can be a lot more like the laws of Israel's neighbors than we'd like to, we'd like to admit. I remember this video that surfaced about a year ago in the downtown east side. And these men were filming this woman that was laying on the sidewalk, unconscious, in broad daylight, and she was being raped. And they were joking and laughing and thinking that this was just an interesting thing to see. And when I reflect on that, you know, I wonder how that video would have looked if we just changed a couple of the details. What if instead of a woman unconscious outside of her tent on the downtown east side, what if instead it was an unconscious woman on the sidewalk outside of her large home, maybe on the West End? How would those men have reacted then? I think maybe, maybe they would have seen the atrocity taking place. They would have seen the value of this person being taken from them. And, and, and I'm sure they would have reacted differently. And you know, it's not just, it's not just these men in this, in this video that, that are prone to do this. We all have this ability to offer preferential treatment to people. This, this is what the heart of our society is all about, is, is we deem some people valuable and worthy of our love and respect, and other people less so. But we see here in Scripture that God is calling the church to be unique and distinct from our culture in this way and to value people, to elevate people to the status that God has given them. So to conclude our first point, you know, we've talked about murder, but we haven't exactly defined it. Um, we, we see in, in the Bible that there's this particular word used for murder, and it's actually a fairly, fairly nuanced word. It's not used very often in Scripture. It's only, a, it's only in the Bible about three dozen times. And there's a different word that's like it, and it's translated to kill, and that word's very common. We see that word hundreds of times in the Bible. And so there's this, there's this unique word that we see here in the Sixth Commandment for murder. And even though it is a word that's not used very often, a third of its usage in all of the scriptures is found in one chapter, and that's Numbers chapter 35. So I think that would be a good place to look to try to hammer down a definition this morning. And it says in verse 20 and 21, And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. We see this passage using language like hatred, lying in wait, enmity. You know, it's clearly describing what we would call premeditated murder. If we were going to summarize murder this morning, um, I want to I wanna borrow a quote from Mark Rooker. He's an Old Testament theologian, and he compiled all of these passages that we find on murder. And he says, Any act of violence against an individual out of hatred, anger, malice, deceit, or for personal gain in whatever circumstance and by whatever method that results in death must be classified as murder. Okay, so moving on to our second point, we, we have a baseline established 
in regards to how the Old Testament would have defined murder. So how can we apply this in practice to our own lives? Well, of course, everything that we've talked about with murder is still very much relevant to us today. We still have laws for manslaughter. We still have laws for various degrees of murder. More than that, we can look at how does the sixth word speak into topics like war or suicide or euthanasia or capital punishment. These are all very loaded topics, and they're important. They're worthy of our time, of our, expl- of our exploration, but I think, I think there's one topic, one that is quite unique to our generation. It's really more controversial than all of those topics, and that's where I feel we need to spend our time this morning, and that is the subject of abortion. Please hear me. My desire this morning is not to hurt anyone, offend anyone, or divide the church. I am convicted that this is a really serious sin, and it's one that we cannot remain silent about. But if you've had an abortion, or if someone close to you in your life has, I'm not here to condemn people. Our God is a great God of grace and redemption. I know this, because I too have felt the heavy burden of sin. This is exactly where the cross meets us. It meets us in our mess, it meets us in our shame, and it cleanses us, it renews us, it redeems us. But it doesn't only do those things. It also calls us to fight against the very sin that we used to serve. Thankfully, there are a lot of people here that have skillfully spoken into the subject of abortion, and really, there are so many people that could do a much better job than me in arguing for the sanctity of life, that could argue for the biological uniqueness of an unborn child, and many other things like that. My my goal this morning is, is not to get into those subjects. I just want to tell you a story. So, a few years ago, I had a friend call me, and he told me the wonderful news that his wife was pregnant. I congratulated him. It was a fairly short conversation. And a few months later, I was at his house, and we were celebrating the pregnancy. And I remember at one point in the night, he said to me, now we feel like we can really get excited. You know, we're thinking about names, and we're getting the house ready. And I remember thinking that was kind of a strange thing to say. And he went on to explain that they had just finished doing a number of tests to um, check to make sure that their, their unborn child, um, they, they, were, they were doing these genetic tests. And, and the reason they were doing it was because his wife had, had a serious condition that was hereditary, one that could be passed along to their children. So they wanted to know, does our child have this same condition? He went on to tell us that they were, they were so thrilled because their child didn't. But if it did, that their plan wasn't to go through with the pregnancy. I just remember being like, feeling so many emotions at the same time, shocked, grateful, um, and just this weight, this heaviness. And I didn't say anything. I never commented on it. I just let it go. 
But that night, you know, as we left, that feeling, that weight just never left me. And, and one of the reasons was is because I knew that their intent was to have more children. So a couple years went by, and I got another phone call. And my friend says to me, my wife's pregnant, and we're scared, and we don't know what's going to happen. We are going to start doing this testing again soon, and we just don't know. Are we going to get lucky with this again? What's, what's going to happen? And I remember in that moment just this overwhelming sense from God where he was so clear to me, this is not the time to be quiet. This is not the time to say nothing. And so reluctantly, I said to my friend, I said, I need to ask you a question, a hypothetical question. And I need to warn you, it's, it's going to be offensive, but I think it's really important. And so he's like, sure. So I said, imagine tomorrow you take your son to a regular doctor's appointment, and at that appointment, they discover that your son had this condition all along. And they say to you, we're sorry, we didn't catch it. This is our fault. You shouldn't have to live with our mistake. We don't normally do this, but we will make an exception and allow you to terminate the child now. And I said to my friend, what would you say? And I remember he didn't say anything for a long time. And then he eventually just said, well, I, I wouldn't. And I just said, of course you wouldn't. You love your son. Your son is so valuable. You see that regardless, sick or healthy, there is such a deep value here. And I just said, I promise you, this child that you've been given, it, it's the same. Like, don't even worry about it. Don't worry about the tests. Just embrace your child. This is such a gift. And ultimately, I have no idea if that conversation was fruitful. He had another healthy child, thank God. But I knew my friend, and I knew that there was really nobody in his life that was going to be promoting life to an unhealthy child. It just wasn't going to be there. And God was asking me in that moment to stand in that gap and to speak life, to defend someone who couldn't defend themselves. And in the culture, in the time we live in, this is something that it's just a matter of time will happen to us. This is something that we will find ourselves in this situation. Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Church, this is our call. It is, is not to be harsh with people, to not hate people but to lovingly come alongside people and promote life, to care for people. If you're someone that is struggling with an unwanted pregnancy, there are people that want to love you and come alongside you and journey with you. And I just, I just beg you to, to reach out and to pursue that life that God has created. You know, when King David wrote Psalm 139, he couldn't have known these things that he wrote. The Holy Spirit spoke through him when he wrote, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none. What a beautiful gift life is. Our last point, peace. What peace is offered to us in the sixth commandment? Jesus spoke about the sixth commandment in his Sermon on the Mount. I think that's a good place to look. He says in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You know, we look at this sixth commandment, do not murder, and we say, okay, this is one I can do. But then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount takes us beyond the letter of the law and he points us to the spirit of the law. He points us to what the law was always intended to do. I think James who's a disciple of Jesus, was using Jesus's broader definition of murder when he wrote in his letter, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. So if James was using Jesus' broader definition, you know, he was at the Sermon on the Mount, then I think we could read into this verse that you desire and do not have, so you're filled with anger. James says that we quarrel and fight because our passions are at war within us. Well, what passions is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about my passion for humility. I don't think he's talking about my passion for self-control or, or outdoing one another in honor or humility. These passions we know do the opposite. They don't cause fights and quarrels. They extinguish the flames of bitterness and hostility. So I think James, of course, is speaking about our worldly passions, the ones that snare us, the ones that enslave us, the passions that if you threaten then you will know my wrath. And these, these, this wrath, these passions, they, they can be seen in all sorts of ways of our lives. You know, a few, a few simple examples. You slightly inconvenience me in my car, and so I rage. Or my children aren't perfectly obedient, and so I'm overly harsh. Or maybe it's not so obvious. Maybe there's that person at work that always has more clever ideas than me and they hurt my pride. And so I secretly hate them. You know, there's so many ways that this anger can deeply manifest itself in our life. You know, I'm very guilty of this. I'll, I'll give you an example. In my life, a, a day in the life of the Dodd home, imagine Andrea wakes up in the morning and gets the kids ready for school, 
and then runs off to work, spends all day busy at work, and then comes back home and kids, homework, dinner, everything else. Finally, the end of the day comes, we get a breath. And then Andrea, who's maybe been burdened with something all day or maybe all week, says to me, hey, can I talk with you about something? And I'm thinking in my head, does she know it's 10.02 at night? And as she threatens my comfort, I think I'll do something passive-aggressive. I'll look at my watch and look at her. And if that doesn't work, if that doesn't get it, and she continues to insist that she wants to share with me, that's when, that's when I get angry. That's when I get upset. Don't you realize how important my sleep is? Don't you realize what time I have to get up at in the morning? I don't care about her burden. I don't care about coming alongside her and loving and loving her and praying with her and, and all those wonderful things that, that God has given me an opportunity to do. I care about my comfort. And if you take my comfort, I get mad. You know, there's so many different ways that, that this can show up in our lives. With something like this, what could be done about it? Something that manifests itself in so many different ways so often. My favorite quote from C.S. Lewis, he said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think what Lewis is doing here is he's rightly comparing our worldly passions and he's comparing them to the good news of the gospel. And his answer to our problem isn't to be people that are less passionate. But instead, we need to be people that pursue a passion that can actually satisfy our deepest cravings. If we have the gospel, we actually have everything. In Christ, God has purchased us, he's renewed us, he's redeemed us, he's brought us from death to life. And what he offers us is so much more than anything in the world. He's offered us himself. Let's be people that continually pray for the spirit of God to illuminate this truth, to open our eyes and our affections to these higher and better passions. If you're, if you're here this morning, you have no idea what I'm talking about. This gospel thing is a mystery to you. I would love to share more of this with you. People here would love to explore the depths of the gospel with you. And I just encourage you, seek out this truth, for it is the only beautiful thing, the only truly thing that deserves our deepest passions. Only when we see the depths of the gospel can we begin to despise these idols in our life that bring out our hatred, anger, vengeance, and ultimately murder. Only then can we tear this sin off of us and lay it at the cross. May Jesus be our only master, the master who said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, the only master who can take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Let's pray. Father, God, I need you to do this work in my life.
God, we need you. God, may you show us the depths of the treasure of what the gospel is. God, help us to see with clear eyes what you offer us, God, and help us to tear this sin off of us, God, and to be people that are slow to anger like you are, to be people that are abounding in steadfast love like you are, God. Help us to pursue your characteristics. Be with us, God. May your spirit help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.